This is an ABC podcast. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by constant bad news about the environment and climate change. But author Jeff Sparrow believes in people power. Yes, it's grim, but if we band together, there's hope. People want something to happen. I think, you know, the the election gave a minor taste of that. But you can feel it when you talk to people. People are not happy about seeing the natural world destroyed and they desperately want to do something to stop it. So I do think that is a reason for hope that the minute there is a, a glimmer of a chance to change things, I think people will flock to it in droves. Big Ideas, I'm Anthony Fennell. Now, people power is one thing, but some people still believe that markets are the answer to our climate problems, that the best fix is a capitalist one. But when it comes to climate change and social ills, can the free market really save the day? At this year's Byron Writers Festival, I spoke with three authors seeking their views on whether our current economic system can deliver the changes we need. Emily Bitto writes fiction and poetry, Natalie Conyu is a senior lecturer at Victoria University, and Jeff Sparrow is a columnist for The Guardian and a former editor of the literary journal Overland. We're in a strange historical conjuncture, I think, a time in which the failings of the capitalist order have never been more apparent. You only have to look around the world, and we're in now an epoch which is seeing the total breakdown of the natural world, manifesting in all sorts of different ways. Yet, at the same time, as the flaws of the system are more and more apparent, there's an absolute paucity of alternatives being discussed and debated. And it's really striking if you go back, say, and look at the publications of, say, the late 19th century, There are all kinds of alternatives to capitalism being discussed and debated in mainstream Australia. You know, whether it's socialism or anarchism or various, you know, feminist philosophies being taken seriously as alternatives to the status quo. Today, however, it's incredibly rare to find voices in the mainstream who suggest that there are different ways that the world might be organised, even as the way that the world is currently organised is manifestly failing. It's complicated, isn't it, in the sense that even countries that we don't think of necessarily as capitalist are now capitalist. And I'm I'm thinking particularly of of communist China, which is hardly communist or hardly socialist. I mean, it's capitalism on steroids. Yeah, so all over the globe now, there is an order prevailing which is based on the centrality of unplanned and continuous economic growth. And I think that in many ways is central to the crisis in which we find ourselves, the glaringly apparent contradiction between a finite environmental order and an economic order that must grow each and every year. And when it doesn't grow, we fall into a recession and a social crisis. And you don't have to be an Einstein to think to yourself, this cannot go on. Now, whether it gets replaced by something better is an open question. Capitalism has changed, or what we've known as capitalism, has changed quite significantly over the last 150 years, hasn't it? How would you define the stage that we're in at the moment? The classical Marxist definition of capitalism is generalised commodity production, and that, that is a society in which production is done primarily for exchange rather than use. And the importance of that definition is as soon as you start thinking about it, it becomes apparent that for the vast majority of human history, that's not how we've lived. Particularly in a country like Australia, that's tremendously important. We have 60,000 years of a continuous culture where production was done primarily for use. That is, people decided what they wanted to do with their labour and then they did it. And the consequence of that was that for 60,000 years, Indigenous people lived on the continent of Australia. They did not destroy the environment, they improved the environment. So much so that when Indigenous society was disrupted, there was almost instantly environmental crisis. And what that says, and this is tremendously important, is we don't have to live the way that we are. We can live in a different and better way. And we know that because it's done in the past and it's been done for far longer than the current system exists. 
Emily Bitto, your novel, Wild Abandon, it seems to me, is a reflection and a repudiation of American-style neoliberalism. Would that be correct? The, the idea, again, of consumption and just endless growth? I wouldn't maybe go so far as a repudiation, I think, an exploration. I think, you know, as a fiction writer, I'm not necessarily trying to kind of put forward an opinion or a particular claim. I think I'm just trying to sort of explore what I observe in the world and, and, you know, that novel, I think, has come out of my absolute bafflement um, looking around at the world that we currently live in and and trying to sort of understand it. It basically follows a young Australian man travelling to the US and I'm really interested in the, you know, the dominance of American culture um, in Australia, the relationship between Australia and the US and definitely the US as the sort of nadir of absolute excess of consumption and opportunity to consume in every possible way all day, every day. It's, it is quite surreal, I think. And seductive, isn't it? The, your main character is very much a person who gets seduced by excess, who gets seduced by the high life. He's in New York. And then comes to a realisation over time that this is, this is not what he wants. I suppose there's that old adage that money doesn't buy happiness. Why do we forget that uh, so often? I mean, I think there's a sort of simultaneous seduction and repulsion, you know, to living in the, the world that we live in. Like, there's a sense of guilt and shame at the same time as the sort of seduction of all of the things that we could have and buy and do and experience. Some of the characters that he meets are already disillusioned, aren't they? They're, they're enjoying that life. There's an art gallery, a character who's a head of an art gallery, very successful, very much part of of the whole capitalist ethos, but ultimately disillusioned. Mm, yeah, I mean, when I was sort of thinking about, you know, that the idea of kind of excess consumption, all of those themes, and I think the art market, the food, you know, world, I sort of have him in the food world of, of New York, bars and cocktails and degustation menus, but then, you know, he also goes to the Midwest and the way that people kind of consume massive amounts of junk food and sort of two sides of the same coin, I think. It's hard to find the off switch. Uh, certainly that seems to be the case with the characters in your book. Yeah. We feel almost kind of crippled by a sense of helplessness and guilt often in this moment because we know that we are heading towards apocalypse but it's very hard for the individual to know what to do and I think like seeing the way that people sometimes respond and I, I guess I've felt this myself from time to time is there's a kind of temptation in a sort of nihilism of party at the end of the world you can't do anything as an individual anyway so you may as well just live it up and give up <laughs> yeah and give up yeah Natalie Con you do you respond to that yeah, and I think that what we're seeing with this, what I would call a, a neoliberal capitalism, which, you know, was popularised by Thatcher and Reagan and in Australia by John Howard. We're always 20 years behind, so that's fine. Um, is that it is the individual that matters more than the community. And so that idea of satiating yourself or working on yourself or bettering yourself takes you out of a matrix of relationships in which we all live anyway. It's a seductive thing, that idea, isn't it? That, uh, because it, tied to that is the idea of personal responsibility, which on the surface of it sounds like a laudable thing, that people should take responsibility for their own lives and their own actions. But there is a flip side, isn't there? Well, I don't think we're taking responsibility for our own lives and actions in the way that we need to. I think the, the way in which we are being sold taking responsibility for our lives or actions is going for a monthly massage or getting these really good sneakers and going for a run and, and you know, downloading this app and meditating and making sure... And, you know, like, that's all fine. And if you have all that time to spend on yourself, then I'm thinking, well, what are you not spending time on, right? Because one of the things I talk a lot about in my book is parenting and pregnancy and systems that enable families. I mean, we live in a culture that ideologically, politically, we say, you know, parenting is the most important thing in the world. And yet we don't have any systems that 
encourage that. One of the things I found liberating about Jeff's book is when he says that, you know, we're not all responsible for climate change in the same way. You know, the people who are doing the most environmental damage have names and addresses. And for me, it is that failure of systems. Our politicians should be held more accountable for those kinds of things. You know, there should be much more corporate governance than we have. And Jeff, talking to that point, that idea that personal responsibility has a flip side, particularly with nature, does it, does it as, as Natalie was saying, let people off the hook, let the people who really need to change off the hook? Yes, yeah, so we are sold this vision of ourselves as individual entrepreneurs, each person, a corporation of one, engaging through the marketplace as we exchange commodities with each other. And this is sold to us as a kind of freedom. But of course, the constraints on this are enormous. The manufacturers of, of drink bottles, for instance, pushed back against any attempt to regulate the tremendous damage they were doing in, in the environment in America by putting the blame on individuals for dropping their drinks across the countryside. And of course, you can choose not to drop your drink or to put it in the rubbish bin, but that choice is taking place in a context where these corporations have systematically destroyed the old systems by which people recycled and reused goods and created an immense apparatus of single-use disposable plastics that are invariably going to end up in the environment. And we're now in a situation where there are microplastics in every part of the world, from the highest mountains to the deepest troughs of the ocean. And whether or not you or I put our plastic cup in the bin is not going to change that. It is a structural, systematic problem, and that's where the change needs to happen. So if we're looking at building a better world or, or reforming the, the system we have, in that regard, what needs to be done? How do you hold those kind of people to account? Again, I just don't think there's, there's any ambiguity about this. We need a planned economy. We need to decide what we're going to produce and we need to produce it accordingly rather than have dictates about what gets made, how it gets made, how it gets used, determined by random market forces. And in the current context, talking about a planned economy sounds incredibly utopian, right? Like, you know, you say that and you get laughed out of the public sphere because it's totally off the agenda. <laughs> and yet the notion that human beings can't collectively decide what they make and how they make it seems to me utterly crazy. We know that for tens of thousands of years, people have done this. And the idea that we can't do it in the future seems to me utterly crazy and a slander on humanity. And Emily Bitto, if you think about your own personal life, as, as a family, if you're running a business, you have to do some of that kind of planning. You can't, you can't just live day by day. You actually have to start looking long term and thinking, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with, with Jeff's point. And it also kind of speaks to that sense of helplessness that the individual feels that why is it so hard to make those changes if as individuals, by and large, people want these changes made. Natalie, uh, that helplessness comes across very much in your book, where you look, as you said earlier, about the, the, you know, at the politics of pregnancy and parenting. And the, the, the sort of system that you describe is, is a very impersonal health system, yes. um, one that's governed by outdated institutions and also ideologies. How much of that, though, is, is what we're talking about here today? How much of that can be laid at the, the feet of the capitalist system? So much of it. If you starve the public health service, you are going to have people looking for alternatives. If you starve the public health service of funds to do basic things, you cannot even get parenting courses run by public hospitals anymore like they used to. I was talking to a midwife who was telling me that women after giving birth would stay at the hospital for, I can't remember if it was one week or two weeks in the 70s, and so that the woman could sleep after she had given birth, that people could look after the baby, that proper time could be given to show how to attach a child because it's not, not that it's not natural, but it's not intuitive to all babies and all mothers. 
And so if the birthing centres have fallen by the wayside, so if those public infrastructures are gone, then there becomes a gap in the market to create something better. But we're not creating something better, we're creating something more expensive. So if you want to have your birth by an obstetrician, you are paying $8,000. Now, is a private obstetrician the best way to go? An obstetrician was there primarily to look after the mother and the baby should something bad happen. Traditionally, it was midwives who looked after the mother. I mean, there, there has been a, a, a professionalisation of the world, hasn't there? I mean, I know when I started, I was a, a graduate cadet as a journalist. Up until that time, you could be become a journalist, you could become a cadet, without having done a university degree, but that all changed. And over time, we've seen this with nursing, right through the medical profession, this kind of sense in which things get professionalised, but the distance between actual people and the people providing services continues to grow, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, what we see as well in our university system is an economic rationalism has taken place since the 70s and 80s, where university is not anymore about the pursuit of knowledge or learning about the world or taking a class in medieval history. If that's what you really want to learn about, it's about going and getting a job and becoming a useful citizen. Now, I have nothing against useful citizens. <laughs> I like to think of myself as a useful citizen, but I don't think that that should be the be-all and end-all of education, right? And so what we've seen is a kind of marketization of education um, to justify government expense in it. Whereas I think it is in all of our public good to have an educated population. But education's become a product, hasn't it? Yes. It's become, in, in many ways, it's just become a commodity. Again, um, Jeff, just like nature. It sounds extreme paranoid to say that capitalism is destroying the planet, but it's not me saying that. Well, it is me saying that, but it's not just <laughs> me saying that. The Guardian did an investigation earlier this year and found that the biggest fossil fuel companies in the world had collectively invested $900 billion in opening up new gas and oil projects by the year 2030. If that goes ahead, that will mean that we, we shoot past any of the IPCC's targets with catastrophic effects for the planet. Absolutely catastrophic events. And yet, they're making it clear they're doing this because they can make lots and lots of money out of it. They are gambling against the fate of humanity and they have invested nearly a trillion dollars in making this happen. And when people invest that much money, they have a tremendous incentive to fight against anyone who wants to stop climate change because they are going to make a mint ensuring that it happens. Natalie, just the way we describe things and we're very subjective about it, aren't we? I mean, if, if we're talking about corporate subsidies, mm -hmm. they're incentives, yep. incentives for business and for the economy. If we're talking about childcare or health, that's a cost to the economy. How damaging is that kind of expected terminology? It's incredibly damaging. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book is, um, you know, when women start entering the workforce in the 60s and 70s, in a very serious way, because women have always had to work, especially black women have had to work, brown women have had to work, indigenous women have had to work, women have always had to work. And prior to uh, World War II, women were answerable to other women when they were. So if you were a nurse, you were answerable to the head nurse. If you were a teacher, you were answerable to the headmistress. If you were a domestic labourer, you were answerable to the woman of the house. What we have in World War II, you have men going off to war, women kind of keeping things going, women start entering positions that they haven't historically had. They don't want to leave them. Why should they? And what feminists had done, some feminists, not all feminists, had said, that is it. We want to have what the men have. We don't want to have what we've had historically because it hadn't been valued, right? And it hadn't been valued because women had done it. 
And so when women start entering the, the workforce wholesale in the 60s and 70s and refuse to leave, you don't go men going, oh, thank God, I can go and raise my child. No one cared because it wasn't seen as important. It's not seen as work because there is no economic output to it. You know, no one comes over to me and said, you've had a really hard day of parenting, Natalie. Here's five grand because we know how much you have <laughs> suffered. So someone in a cafe once gave me, gave me two free biscuits when my kid was really arcing up, so that was nice. <laughs> you can't survive on biscuits. <laughs> what are the difficulties, though, in trying to change that, that mindset and not just get people to, to realise that certain activities aren't costs and shouldn't be treated that way, oh, look, but the, also to factor it into the system so that they are recognised and accredited? Well, I just don't think it is that difficult. And I think what we are talking about in our different ways is the idea of worth and what is worth our time and what is worth our labour and what is worth doing as a society rather than as a collective of individuals. And so, you know, they are doing it in Scandinavia. They're doing it in Japan where people, where men were not taking a year of leave and so they made it mandatory in Norway that you would get four years or thereabouts for parents when a baby came, which is reasonable considering that children go to school at the age of five. It's like not magic. Um, and if men didn't take at least six months, the family lost that six months of paid leave. Like it is happening. It's just that we refuse to look at it and we refuse to put these policies into practice. Divorce rates are lower in countries where there is a more equitable share of labour with, within the house. We shouldn't be talking about it as a deficit. Yes, it is hard work, but so is any other job that we do that's worth it. But we've known this for quite some time, haven't we? We've known that the current system that we operate under is increasing inequality. It's, you know, inequality has been going up since the birth of neoliberalism, since Margaret Thatcher said, you know, there is no alternative. Why isn't it changing over overall, particularly given we have things like the, the global financial crisis? Because people are making unprecedented sums of money and, and governments are allowing them to. I mean, Jeff, you could probably talk more about this, but I think it's, you know, if you if you believe in the invisible hand of the market, and it's not the invisible hand of the market, there are many hands that are making a lot of money in the market and they're deciding what the market should do. Like the whole idea of the invisible hand of the market or trickle-down economics as if the market is run by benevolent sprites. That <laughs> it's, it's, ridic it's a ridiculous idea and that, that they are able to kind of hide themselves behind these terms is is part of the problem. Um, yeah, so, so the climate crisis began to manifest itself in the late 80s, early 1990s, at the real zenith of the neoliberal turn. And at that moment, it became clear that there was a fundamental incompatibility between the natural world and the market. But because the market system had been so normalised, the general consensus then was not that the market needed to be amended to be more compatible with the natural world, but the natural world needed to be amended to be more compatible with the market. And that's been the paradigm in dealing with environmental crises ever since, that in order to save the environment, you need to create a market in the thing that you are trying to save. So, you know, the, fed, the federal government is now talking about a biodiversity market, you know, and you can introduce market principles to absolutely everything if you are inventive enough, but it doesn't capture the things that matter to most of us. When we think about our relationships with the people who are dearest to us, when we think about how we look at a sunset or, you know, the, the principles that matter most in our lives, we don't think, oh, yeah, well, you know, I've got this son and he's worth 20 grand and, you know, my daughter, she's worth... It's, it's just crazy. We don't think like that. But, you know, in my book, I talk about a serious proposal by the International Monetary Fund. A bunch of its uh, theorists decided that the way to stop the extinction of whales was to set a price on whales, to set up a whale market, to work out what each whale was worth, and then let the invisible hand of the market, you know, save the whales. And as I said in a, in, in a previous session, if you or, you or I found a whale that was beached on the Byron Bay, we wouldn't need a market to help us to save it. We would just push it back into 
of the ocean. I mean, if it wasn't a big one. <laughs> we don't need markets to let us to make us do these things. And these these insane Byzantine market systems, like emissions trading systems very rarely achieve anything for the environment, but they do make a lot of money for financiers and speculators. Well, they can also, can't they, and I'm thinking of carbon trading in particular, they can be well-intentioned when they're set up, but actually end up corrupting the whole process of trying to, to cut carbon emissions. Oh, 100%. I mean, that, that's the story of emission trading systems all over the world. They are just a gift for shonks and speculators to, you know, because they are about trying to turn something intangible into dollar figures based on these bizarre calculations that almost nobody understands. You know, you are selling the fact that you haven't cut down some trees that you were going to cut down. Of course, this is just rife with corruption. There's a very telling quote in your book from a guy named Irving Crystal, and he wrote, here's the quote, consumer societies are empty of moral meaning, if not forthrightly nihilistic. Uh, remind us who Mr. Crystal was and why that's important, that quote's important in terms of talking about the sort of things that we're talking about today. Yeah, so Irving Crystal's the, the, one of the godfathers of neoconservatism. And the point of, of, of this quote was this recognition by a section of the American right that um, market systems did not, by and large, motivate ordinary people, you know, that very few people volunteer to go and fight wars to save markets. And so neoconservatism was a movement that tried to buttress the market system with a whole series of um, conservative militaristic principles, you know, responsible for things like the Iraq war in 2003. And I think it's really kind of important because the market system is often presented as if it's, you know, a system of equality and trade where everyone is just engaged in, you know, dealing with each other over the cash register. In the real world, however, it's inextricably linked with competition between nation states. And so one of the problems with dealing with the environmental crisis at the moment is we're also facing a geostrategic crisis between the United States and China. And the worse that crisis gets, the harder it is to resolve any of the environmental problems. And a war between the United States and China, which I think is looking increasingly likely, will not only be catastrophic because it's a war between two nuclear powers, but will be catastrophic because of the environmental consequences as well. I mean, it goes to show that increasingly environmental problems are fundamentally connected with all of the other crises that are manifesting in the world. We've talked about the problems that we have. Where do we go from here? Natalie, let's start with you. Is, is capitalism, do we need to throw it out or are we talking about changing it, trying to change it? Is it salvageable? Oh, I'm not an economist. I don't think I can answer that question about whether we throw it out. Certainly it doesn't in its current state is not benefiting the people that it needs to benefit. I don't know that the problem is capitalism or whatever system it is that we we bring in its place. The problem is how do you regulate it? If you have a political class that is subservient to the uber wealthy in our culture, whatever system you have is going to be corrupted, I think. So... Um, I think it comes down to regulation. I think it comes down to people with power thinking about what is worth something in our culture. What is it worth? What does it produce? Like, not, you know, am I going to make a million bucks out of it, but what is it worth to the society in which we live? And so there needs to be more thought about that. So that's, that's talking about values, isn't it? Yeah. Emily, your thoughts? I am not an economist either. I'm a novelist. I guess I would just say it's important for everyone to kind of think about imaginatively what the possibilities are for an alternative. I think we tend to accept that there, there really are no alternatives and that's part of the problem and that's a lie that we have been fed. I mean, my dad grew up in communist Czechoslovakia, so um, I'm also a little cynical about the tested alternatives that have been sort of tried, but I think there, there are millions of ways that we could change things 
in every aspect of, of society. And as a storyteller, you know, I think that there is also power in imagining collectively and individually alternative futures and, and thinking about what is actually important to us. Uh, Jeff, you make the point in your book, you talk a lot about the former Soviet Union, how the dichotomy between the free West and, you know, in the communist East confused issues for a long time for people. And also that what happened was that um, communism actually became a form of capitalism under Stalin because of his desire to to push industrial growth. Could I get you to talk to, to those ideas for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important not to have any illusions in the Soviet Union, particularly in terms of the environment. I mean, the official slogan of Stalin's Russia in the 1930s was war against nature. So, you know, not exactly ideal. And if we are talking about a planned economy that is directed to useful ends that is only conceivable in the form of democracy, because otherwise you can't tell what people's uses are. But I suppose the point that I want to make in terms of the themes of this festival, in terms of radical hope, when we think about the environmental crisis, right, it seems overwhelming at the moment. We are in a dark, dark place, and I think that there are going to be some pretty scary times ahead. But the fundamental point is we know what to do. We know what is causing climate change. We have the science and the technology which tells us what alternatives to that might be. The problem is we have an economic system that won't allow allow us to deploy them. And we can get a glimpse of what an alternative might be like. We don't have to think about um, the Soviet Union. We can think about, say, the response to COVID. Now, all of a sudden, governments all across the world said, this is an emergency. We can't leave the market to decide who gets vaccines and who doesn't. We can't let the market decide how we respond to COVID. All of a sudden, we had the Conservative government of Scott Morrison introducing the most far-reaching welfare reforms that Australia has seen in half a century. Well, if we can do that in response to the emergency that was COVID, there's no reason why we can't do that in response to the far, far greater um, emergency that is the climate crisis. And as soon as we start to think of those options, then suddenly a different kind of society doesn't seem like science fiction, but actually seems like something that might be within our grasp. Natalie, you're a bit sceptical, aren't you, about the lessons that we've learnt out of COVID? I am. I mean, we all talked about how important care was at the beginning and, you know, we should all care for one another and and then you start seeing splinter groups and freedom marches, but also within families. And what worries me is that we see how much a family can take. So in COVID, I, as a tertiary educator, got to work from home. Secondary educators primary educators got to work from home, daycare educators did not. Now, anyone who's ever had a kid in daycare will tell you that it is just a germ bath, right? And so to the idea that you are letting people, and most of the people who work in daycare centres are brown, working class women, letting these vulnerable people... Like aged care centres. Like aged care centres, exactly, stay open so that parents could make money was really upsetting to me. So I kept my two-year-old home, (laughs) like, which was not easy either. So my husband and I, you know, we shared care. We had no breaks for like a year. (laughs) You know, one of us would take our youngest for a walk at seven o'clock in the morning while the other did a class with our six-year-old. Then we would someone would continue the childcare to one while the other person worked and then you would just swap while Dash napped, Joelle would do more lessons and then the other parent would work. And as soon as dinner was done, the kids were in bed, you got to catch up on all the things you hadn't done. Now, what worries me about that is that governments have seen how much that we can bear in the immediate time of getting through this crisis. And so, you know, the responsibility fell to each individual family to handle it. 
So I do worry that they'll say that, but I do think that there's a mental health crisis coming because of that. Because I don't know about anyone else, but I'm still really tired from that time. Like I really am. But I, I also don't want to be pessimistic. And I also think that if we think about it, shame is a useless emotion. Like if we're shamed every time we try and buy a product, if we're shamed every time we're like, oh, far out, I forgot my keep cup, then we are going to be less likely to take action. And I think there's a lot of potency in, in staying angry at the right people. Jeff, if we had this conversation two years ago, the political landscape in the West was markedly different. Does that give you hope for our ability to deal with some of these issues? Think about recent political events. Think what we've been through over the last four or five years here in Australia. We've had catastrophic bushfires. We've had catastrophic flooding. We've had COVID-19. And we've had, we're, we're going through an economic downturn. All of those things can be attributed at, um, at least in part to the environmental crisis that is manifesting in different ways. The bushfires and the floods, obviously connected to climate change. COVID-19 epidemiologists tell us that we can expect more and more pandemics as humanity increasingly encroaches onto natural environments that have never previously been in contact with human beings. And one of the reasons why we're enduring so much inflation at the moment is because uh, the heat waves all across Europe have led to massive crop failures. So one of the things that's happening now is that environmental breakdown is intensifying all of the other social problems that we have. And I think this means that there is no going back to normal, or there is no normal now. The last four or five years are the normal that we are living in until the broader environmental crisis is resolved. Now, that is scary in all sorts of ways, but it also means that the political and social situation is very fluid. So you think about something like COVID-19 and how much it changed the political landscape. I think you would be a very bold person to predict what Australia would look politically like in the next five years. I think the only safe thing to say is it's not going to look like the past five years. And I would like to think that that gives rise for some positive developments that, you know, we saw things like the Black Lives Matter movement, which is the biggest social movement ever in human history, which shows that people do care about the planet and are prepared to, you know, stand up against powerful forces. And I would like to think that that is something we might start to see around the environmental crisis. Natalie, the role of universities and tertiary institutions, if we're, if we're trying to think creatively beyond the parameters of profit, what role should they play? Oh, God, they should just be a place for public good. I mean, in terms of people just being educated in what you want to be educated in. You know, there should just be places where people can go to think and can be taught how to think by people who've done it for a little bit longer. I mean, there should be places of imagination. But they can be all these places, but if no one listens to them, then that becomes really difficult. Like, if we're not inviting academics or scientists onto panels and we are just having... My husband refuses to watch Q&A anymore because he's like, it's just a bunch of politicians. Like, I don't want to hear politicians trying to sell me their ideas. Like, I want to hear people who know what they're talking about. But, you know, the, the Minister for Health doesn't need to have a health background. The Minister for Defence doesn't have ever needed to have studied that. As an academic, that seems really bonkers to me. But there is, there is, isn't there, there's a sense in which, you know, many people have pointed this out, that universities have been turned into vocational institutions. There's nothing wrong with vocational institutions. We need those. But we, we seem to have... Uh, we seem to have turned universities into feeding grounds for business, in a, in a sense, for commerce. A lot of us who, who work within the institutions rally against that. We dissent in the ways that we can. A lot of us still believe that they are places for genuine learning. Jeff, you talked about the very different mentality back in the latter part of the 19th century, when there were lots of utopian thinkers our sense of progress, have we lost that or has it been distorted over time? I don't think there's any question um, about that. You only have to think of something like um, contemporary 
science fiction. So if you think of the golden age of um, American science fiction after the Second World War, immediately after the Second World War, all of those golden age authors, when they were writing about what the future was going to look like, they were all competing with each other to come up with futures that were better than the status quo is going to have, like, you know, we live on Mars, we're going to have, you know, flying saucers, we're going to do this, that, another. You know, if you read science fiction now or you watch science fiction movies, it's almost unheard of for someone to put forward a vision of the future that's not apocalyptic. When you talk to young people about what they think the next 20 or 30 years are going to be like, it's vanishingly rare for anyone to put forward a vision which is not extraordinarily bleak. I've noticed there are no trees in science fiction. The landscape is always either sort of brutalist architecture or completely devoid of vegetation. Does that speak to uh, an inherent pessimism within our society about the way the world is going? Yeah, there's a cartoon that um, circulates online from time to time, which I think of in this context, which is has a bunch of guys sitting around inside a cave in some kind of apocalyptic future. And one of them says um, to the other, well, you know, we might have destroyed the planet for a brief shining instant. The stock exchange was right up there. (laughs) (laughs) Natalie, again, talking about the impersonal nature of our systems, it's very easy for people to say, well, there should be more involvement of people. We should actually encourage people to be part of the democratic discourse. But it is very hard to get people motivated, isn't it? It's one thing to say that, but to get them up, uh, you know, in countries where there's, you know, even just taking voting, in countries where there's not compulsory voting, and that's almost all of them, except us, it's hard to get people even to the polling booth. Yeah, and I think that's because of a lot of things, I mean, the rise of social media, the rise that anyone is an expert on anything, if you've been to enough corners of Reddit, the idea that universities aren't places for learning but for skills. I can understand why people are pessimistic, but, I mean, I was I was really pleased at the last election that so many people were concerned and voted about climate for all their faults. I was really heartened to see this move towards the teal independence because they were running on the single platform of climate. Now, that's going to be a problem, no doubt about it, but that in Australia overwhelmingly we're saying, like, this is really important. We need a change. How you get people to care is by, I don't think shaming and guilting people about every single action that they make makes for a very productive or very hopeful populace. Emily, your thoughts? I mean, how do you motivate people to change? I mean, I think the messaging needs to change and I mean obviously the messaging is coming from people who don't actually want to make change and that's the the problem. I think people are being told that they need to make individual change, they need to make individual sacrifices and for a lot of people in the world uh, who are living, you know, in very poor conditions, that seems absolutely insane and it is and the thing is like to actually redistribute wealth equitably, the majority of people would be in a better (laughs) position and just the people who are in an insanely um, privileged position right now would be in a a worse position, but that's fine. (laughs) Um, I think it's, you know, it's about encouraging people to kind of imagine a genuinely better position for themselves where they still have everything they need, they don't have excess, but it's a sustainable future and a sustainable relationship to the ecosystem that we are part of as animals. Jeff, you said earlier that you're sure that things will change, but whether they change for the better is is another matter. Is there a sense in which we as humans are 11th hour creatures, if you like? We talk a lot about getting on and getting on with it, but we don't do it until the very last moment. I'm not sure I'd put it quite like that. It's just that the extremity of what's coming will lead to radical answers of one kind or another. So, you know, if you listen to the climate scientists, they talk about hundreds of thousands of climate refugees. And, you know, this is not some crazy speculation. This is an entirely mainstream prediction that as the oceans rise and temperatures worsen, lots and lots of people will be dispossessed and will become refugees. Well, you can imagine one response to that in a country like Australia, which would be all about border security. 
You could imagine a far right mobilising around climate, which is we have enough problems, keep them all out, set up more camps, fortify the borders and so on and so forth. So you can imagine the climate crisis leading to some quite scary places at the same time because the environmental crisis is so entwined with all of the other social issues that we're facing, one of the positive aspects of it, I think, and this is something that James Bradley mentioned in a previous session, is that fighting to stop the environmental breakdown is also about fighting to improve all sorts of other issues. It's about fighting for human rights. It's about fighting for indigenous people. It's about, you know, fighting for better housing. And so, that kind of is a note of hope. It's an extraordinary challenge that we face, but it does give us a chance to be part of something that could be really inspirational. We talked about that idea of progress. Short-term thinking is, again, it's, it's the short-term thinking of our, of our politicians, of our institutions. We hear about that a lot, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of change going on, does there? No, the climate crisis is a crisis about time in all sorts of strange and contradictory ways. Geologists are talking about deep time and comparing, you know, the climate now to the climate millions of years ago. At the same moment, though, we're also increasingly aware that the time span that we have to prevent changes that are going to last for hundreds, if not thousands of years, is tremendously short. In terms of the IPCC's targets, you know, what we do in the next few years is going to have profound consequences that will be felt by our grandchildren's grandchildren. And so there is an immense responsibility on this generation. And what we do right now is in some ways we are in this crux point of human history where the actions that we take right now are going to have repercussions that will last for an immense period of time. Natalie, the economic, the environmental problems are there, the political problems, they're there in our face. But going back to a, a point we were talking about earlier, is there a risk that people just feel overwhelmed and just feel like this is all too bad, I'm going to crawl back into my shell? Yeah, I definitely think there is that risk. And I think we need to aim our vitriol in the right places. How do you make the people who have the power to make the decisions to change our trajectory listen? And if you're asking me that question, I don't know. I do, I, honestly, I don't know. But it can't just be about attack. It can't be just about criticism. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be constructive. I don't know how to talk to a billionaire. <laughs> I've never met one, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to communicate these ideas in a way that they'd be willing to listen to without kind of going back to Jeff's point about making a market for saving the whales. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a governmental responsibility to change the narrative about economics and cost which is what you and I talked about. What is a profit and what is a cost to the economy? And I think if we can start to talk and change our language, that's the only way we're going to change the system enough to kind of break through, I think. And Jeff, that, trying to strike that balance between criticism and, in, and, and moving beyond that is, is quite difficult, isn't it? When we've got so many very real threats in front of us. Yeah, but people are crying out for hope, aren't they? I mean, everyone you talk to gives you the same kind of answer. And it does seem to me that the minute we had a movement that looked like it could achieve something on the climate, people would flock to it in droves. I mean, people want something to happen. I think, you know, the, the election gave a minor taste of that. But you can feel it when you talk to people. People are not happy about seeing the natural world destroyed and they desperately want to do something to stop it. So I do think that is a reason for hope that the minute there is a, a glimmer of a chance to change things, I think people will flock to it in droves. Jeff Sparrow and his latest book is Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating. We also heard from novelist Emily Bitto, author of Wild Abandon, and Natalie Conyu, author of The Cost of Labour. And that conversation was from the Byron Writers' Festival. Wetlands, 
may turn out to be the hero of the climate change story. They're what's called blue carbon ecosystems, able to capture carbon dioxide 30 to 50 times faster than their green cousins, the forests. And if you want to help protect coastal wetlands, then you can join the Blue Carbon Army. That's a citizen science project led by marine ecologist Dr Maria Delmar Paracios, who's based at Deakin University's Blue Carbon Lab. The Blue Carbon Army is a citizen science program wanting to advance blue carbon science. And we do it with the help of citizen scientists. And we try to educate them on the importance of coastal wetlands and why they're important to climate change. So by joining us in the field and getting a full-on, hands-on experience in the mud and becoming a scientist for a day, they're actually getting a personal connection with the ecosystem, allowing them to learn a lot, but also to change their perception on the sort of muddy, odd-looking, uncharismatic ecosystems that most people don't know about. When the program was launched in 2018, thanks to funding from HSBC, we were directly um, targeting Australia's top corporate executives. But now we've moved on and included also traditional owners, community groups, and school kids. We have learned that you really need to get hands-on and really show them. Because there's no point uh, in me talking a lot about it and explaining, because yeah, you might think, oh, what is this lady saying? She has no idea. But once you go into the field and you feel a mangrove, you smell it, you get muddy on it, you see those carbon pools accumulating in the soil, then you really understand why are they so important and you're willing to give them a fighting chance even though they're weird and odd looking. So I think the key is to really get immersive and, and show people what it is and what it means once you're in the field. So can you actually quantify, once you've gotten them smelling their salty flowers and getting all muddy, if that actually changes behaviour? Yes. So that's one of the key things we wanted to learn from this program. So what we did is with support from a social scientist in Cardiff University in the UK, we developed this series of surveys aiming to ask participants about their experience, about everything they've learned and how their perception has changed. So we had surveys given to participants before they came and got into the mod, just after, and then three months down the road. And the results were actually quite interesting. And we told them, tell us the three first things that come to mind once you hear the word coastal wetland. So in the first goal, people were saying, wet, mud, stinky, mosquitoes, dirty. Like all really simple terms or descriptive terms or with a quite negative connotation. But once we surveyed the people after, and even three months after, they were much more, they were using words that were heaps more positive and connotated like a higher understanding of what was going on in the ecosystem. So they use words like blue carbon, climate solution, important, and fish enhancement. So it shows you really how the program was having an impact on the knowledge that the people had, but also how it enhanced and changed their appreciation for the ecosystem. There's more to the wetlands than just the, this, this blue carbon and being a carbon sink and them being biodiversity. Culturally, they have value. Yeah, so there's something that we're actually working in the mo- at the moment because we come from like very structured and hard box scientists where we only like quantify things. If you can measure it, we're a ruler or you can count it. So we could like quantify how much carbon is trapped, we quantify how much the strength of the wave gets reduced, but we've understood that there's other other services that they provide that we hadn't quantified. And cultural value and cultural services is one of the big ones, especially here in Australia, where the Aboriginal uh, peoples and the traditional owners had had a really strong connection for, for millions of years. Marine ecologist Dr Maria Delmar Palacios. And you can hear the full program on the carbon-fixing superpower of wetlands by clicking the link on the Big Ideas homepage. I'm Anthony Fennell. Thanks for your company and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.